Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. We left that last week, didn't we? The armor of God. You know, um, I came up with the uh, titles of the sermons and the pericopes, the sections of Scripture. Well, I didn't come up with those. God came up with those. But <laughs> when we looked at Ephesians, uh, Joel and I sat down, and I divided it up according to thought groups and all. And some of them followed the patterns of paragraphs in the Scripture. Some broke paragraphs. Some began uh, at different places than the uh, paragraphs in Scripture. But Joel is the one then that gave the headings for the sections. And I want to thank Mark for going through those as an introduction to the last session. And uh, you will remember that he gave us these titles, and I think they're very good. First, identity, who are we? Second, then the making of uh, the masterpiece, and that is, has to do with spiritual formation, but it also has to do with building the church. And then there was the equipping for the work of the ministry. And as Mark just said, how to walk word the worthy, well, actually, it's worthily, but we walk as worthy servants. Then godly homes, and then body, arm, body armor is the last section, two sermons. Why in the world is this tonight on perseverance and prayer, encouragement and prayer, in the section on body armor? I said something about it this morning, and thanks for closing with the hymn that we quoted last in the sermon this morning. All creatures of our God and King. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting the way God brings things together, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let's think about it this way for a moment. About two or three Wednesdays ago, we talked about spiritual disciplines. And that's partly what we talked about last week with body armor, putting on the body armor. You know, in the military, I know in the army, and I'm sure it's the same with the other other forces. By the way, how many forces are there now? Six, at least. At least. At least. There are actually more than six. Army, Navy, Air Force, what, Marines, Coast Guard, Space Force, Merchant Marines. Merchant Marines, yeah. You know, in any of those services, as they accession people into the service, they assess them before they assess, access them. And they assess them for what? Mental ability, you take a test and you have to pass a certain level on that test to show that you have the mental acuity to learn and to serve in the forces. Uh, there is also sort of an emotional quotient test. It's called, did you stay out of jail? <laughs> well, that, that has to do with your ability to relate in social life and to fit in emotionally. Seriously, you know. And we have a way of governing that in the military. It's called UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice, right, Ken? And then also, too, uh, physically. You have to pass a physical test. You physically have to be uh, able to perform the task. So you may have something that disqualifies. You know, for a long time, flat feet disqualified persons from being in the Army. I don't know about the Air Force. They sit behind desks. No, I'm, I'm just teasing. <laughs> they don't. 
they don't. Yeah. Um, so, and you also have to be able to perform. So there's a minimum sort of physical fitness. As a matter of fact, if you cannot perform the PFPT, the physical fitness, physical training test annually in the Army, then it reflects on your efficiency report. And if your efficiency reports aren't good enough, then they boot you out. So there is fitness. Physical fitness, mental fitness, intellectual, and emotional fitness. 20 years ago, um, when I was working with uh, G.T. Gunhus, who was the chief of Army chaplains, we were rewriting the leadership manual for the Army. And in that, they had three circles on a page. And they said, this is what makes a person fit to serve in the Army. They need to be intellectually fit. They need to understand, know how to do their job. They need to be emotionally fit. Here's another circle. They have to be emotionally fit, and they also have to be physically fit. There weren't five circles like the, uh, the Olympics, but you get the picture. And these, these uh, circles interlocked. And to a person, the chaplain team that sat on this, in this group that was helping to guide and writing the leadership manual, we observed the same thing. We said, there's something missing. And they said, what? The artillerymen and the infantrymen and the lawyers and the doctors. They said, what? And we said, spiritual fitness. They said, you can't do that in an army manual. Yes, you can. No, you can't do that. That's religious. And our response to them is, we weren't talking about religious fitness. We were talking about spiritual fitness. Now, don't mistake what I'm, about to, what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's no connection between religious and spiritual, but you know what I'm talking about. They were thinking in terms of institutional religion. Oh, you can't put that in the manual, you know, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, that sort of thing. We said, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual fitness. And after uh, many months of uh, basically fighting with them, you know, holding our ground, and oh, by the way, that is a discipline, okay? Uh, G.T. Gunhus and his team won, and they put in the manual for the United States Army, leadership manual, that people should be spiritually Well, that's what we were talking about last week. We were talking about spiritual fitness, weren't we? Um, we talk about spiritual disciplines then to make us spiritually fit, and some of those were contained in the body armor. So help me here. What are some of the spiritual disciplines? We talk about this a lot. It's very popular today in our seminaries. We even have courses on spiritual, what? Formation. So help me here. What are some of the spiritual disciplines? Let me put it this way. I think a spiritual discipline is something that we exercise regularly in order to make us stronger, or we allow God to exercise us to make us stronger spiritually. Is that a good definition? So what are spiritual disciplines? Reading scripture. scripture, reading, study, exposition, Yeah, being in the Word. Prayer. What? Solitude and quiet time and not only praying, but what? Meditating. Meditating on the Word of God and meditating on what God is saying to you in prayer. That's three. I'm going to suggest that you might come up with ten. What? Music. What? Music. Amen. We learn and sing What? What are the three categories? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we memorize those, and the melodies also play over in our mind during the week. 
And you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you find yourself humming a hymn or a song, and you, you weren't thinking of it consciously. Where does that come from? It comes from the wellspring of your spiritual formation. Okay, so therefore, I'm, what else? What? Fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it's not just, uh, you know, we're here together. It has to be focused on deriving the strength from the fellowship. And there are other things that have to do with coming together. But I wouldn't discount that. Yeah. What else? Fasting. Fasting. So that suggests, you know, Jesus said something about not only prayer and fasting, two spiritual disciplines. He talked about a third one then in uh, Matthew, the sixth chapter. What was it? Almsgiving. Okay. So Bible study, prayer and meditation, almsgiving, fasting, spiritual songs, hymns, singing. Um, hmm. What about, okay, Bible study? Um, what? Memorization of scripture. And that's different than Bible study. Hiding the word of God in your heart so that you might not sin against him and it also be a light into your path and lamp into your feet. So scripture memorization is a discipline in itself. I would suggest, too, that the exercise of faith is a spiritual discipline. And what I mean by that is doing things that you've never done before that God calls you to do that stretch the limits of your faith. Reaching out and doing things. You know, that takes a lot of discipline then to do what? Not give up. What about resisting temptation? Is that a spiritual discipline? Absolutely. And we don't do it in our own power. The Holy Spirit helps us to do it. And Christ does because he's been there. Even to the point then, ultimately, of not only resisting temptation, but resisting the temptation to apostatize or to heresize. Is heresize a word? Not succumbing to heresy or to apostasy falling away. In other words, facing persecution. One of the ultimate spiritual disciplines is facing persecution to the end. And we call that what? Martyrdom. Giving our way. So you see, there are a lot of things beyond Bible study and prayer, Bible study, prayer, and um, meditation that are spiritual disciplines. One of those is prayer. And yet, when we looked at this last week, and it's because it's a natural division in the scripture, we did not put praying as one of the elements of spiritual armor. I believe it is. It is an element of spiritual armor. Putting on prayer and exercising it. So, it is connected, I think, with what we talked about last week. I think that Joel was right to put it in the category of body armor. Okay? So the passage tonight, Ephesians 6, the closing passage, Ephesians 6, 18 through 24. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to you, brothers, and love with faith from the God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So the context of this, I think, is praying and being on the alert in verses 18 through 20 actually complete an idea that began earlier in the chapter. Look at verse number 10. How did all this begin? Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. And so that introduced the section on body armor and spiritual warfare. Put on the armor of God. Verse 11. Stand firm. That is, stand firm how dressed in the armor of God. Verses 14 through 17. And then we come to two things that derive from that in being strong in the Lord. Praying at all times in verse 18 and also being alert. Both of those have military kind of sounds to them, don't they? Of course, when we understand that praying is part of the body armor, especially being on alert. And then the uh, last section tonight is connected with that in terms of the encouragement we derive then from those that come to comfort us who have been in the war themselves and have come to strengthen us in verses 21 through 24. They, Paul informs them that Tychicus is going to come and he's going to do two things. He's going to explain his circumstances to them and he's going to comfort them with words of encouragement. And then he blesses them at the end. So I would divide this passage up a little bit differently uh, in, in view of the body armor tonight than normally. I would divide it this way. Number one, just half of a verse is the first section. Pray in the Spirit. Right, Mark? Yeah. Pray in the Spirit, verse 18a. And then, beginning in 18b through 20, pray with purpose. Pray with a focused purpose. And then, verses 21 through 24, be encouraged, be blessed. So let's talk about praying in the Spirit. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And then with this in view, he continues. He talks about prayer and petition. And you know, there are different kinds of prayer. We're not going to have a Bible study on this six types of prayer tonight, or seven, or however many we've learned in seminary. You know, the prayer of thanksgiving, prayer of praise, prayer of petition, so on and so forth. He has two of them here. I think that basically prayer here is communicating with God. And that's not just talking to God, it's what? It's also listening to God. The word that for prayer, all derivatives of it, you know, have to do with bowing before the Lord. It's an act of worship. So when that word prayer is used, it is always in the scripture used in connection with God. It is a religious activity. Petition, on the other hand, to beseech, to make a request, can be a religious act. It can be an act of worship, but it's also used in secular context as well. So that's a distinguishing point. Prayer is usually broader in its context, and petition is more specific. There are about three or four other places in Scripture where they're used together by Paul. As he writes to the Philippians, as he writes to Timothy twice, he talks about prayer and petition together. And they seem simply, to me, maybe I'm not an expert in this, maybe I'm I'm a little off, but I think he uses them almost as reduplicating, you know, prayer and petition, you know, pray generally and and, and petition at making requests. Here, I think it's pretty clear that they each have a special purpose. And it may be in the other passages, too. Here, I think that he's saying, in general, pray and 
and all prayer. He's suggesting that we ought to be persistent in prayer, in our general prayer. And then he says, in petition, he's talking about making prayer about specific issues, uh, petitioning for specific things. Um, So, why do I think that? Verse 18b, he then uses it again. What does he say? And we petition for all the saints. So whether or not he is just echoing the same thought in prayer and petition or not, he does get to the point where he says, I want your prayers to be specific in terms of petition. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Well, this could mean a couple of things. It could mean um, we should pray continuously. Pray continuously at all times. And incidentally, in the Spirit. So pray at all times. I know you're praying in the Spirit, but pray at all times. Be continuous. I don't think that's the focus here. Yes, he wants us to pray continuously. But the real focus, I think, in this phrase, in this verse, is praying in the Spirit. I think what he's saying here is, in all your prayers and in all your petitions, all prayers and petitions, you always, we must always be praying how? In the Spirit. So I think the real focus here is on praying in the Spirit whenever we pray. Well, what does that mean? Well, we could spend probably three sermons on that, you know. Uh, One is pretty obvious, I think. Uh, Romans 8. Romans 8, you know, when he comes down to talking about we are weak. We're weak enough that we don't even know our own needs. We're weak enough we don't even know how to pray. We're infirm enough, no matter how strong we grow spiritually in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we are weak and we need help. And we know that the Holy Spirit does what? He then intercedes for us. And he speaks with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And where do those groanings go? To whom do they go? They go to the one who interprets them and gives them it's assumed to the Father. And who is that? Jesus Christ. He is the one that makes intercession. How many times have we said, we don't intercede? I know we talk about intercessory prayer. That's a category. And in doing intercessory prayer, we don't intercede for others. What we do is we take their petitions, we present those petitions, asking whom to intercede? Jesus Christ. He is the one that intercedes at the throne of God. And in that sense, we participate in intercession. But you see, we're not smart enough, we're not strong enough, we're not spiritually insightful enough to do this by ourselves. We must do it in the Spirit, submitting to the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to communicate for us the innermost needs that even we don't know. I think there's another way of looking at it, too. You know, we don't pray in the name of the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. But... We do, we do and can pray in the Spirit. And it's perfectly fine for us to say in our prayers that we pray in the Spirit. Um, there's another way of looking at this, and it's 1 Corinthians 2, and it's the passage uh, right next to the one that we're going to look at next week. Um, right after he talks about, I didn't come to you with eloquence and wisdom and fine-sounding words, but I came to know Christ. Remember that passage? so that you might know the power of God, which is the preaching of the cross. And then there's another section we're going to look at next week. It's going to be the introductory passage sermon that we're going to use for the Bible story. Why? 
Because as I, I do speak to you in wisdom, but it's not the wisdom of men. It's the wisdom of God that was hidden for the ages. And there we see revealed the plan of redemption, the secret. We're going to do that next week. After that, then, he talks about the difference between spiritual persons and natural persons in 1 Corinthians 2. And he says, we receive the Spirit of God. We're God's children. We receive the Spirit of God. And it says the Spirit knows the deep things of God. We don't. The Spirit reveals those spiritual truths to those that are spiritual people. And as a result, we can know spiritual truth unlike natural persons cannot know spiritual truth because it says at the end of that part of the passage, we have the mind of whom? We have the mind of Christ. You know, a few years ago, one of our Baptist leaders in our denomination said that God doesn't hear the prayers of non-Christians. He doesn't hear the prayers of Muslims and pagans and Jews. That's a bunch of bunk. I hate to use a technical term. God hears everybody's prayers. If God didn't hear everybody's prayers, we'd all be pagans. God hears anybody's prayer. And he answers anybody's prayer. And it doesn't have to be according to a certain formula. What happens if somebody prays to God and doesn't pray in Jesus' name? Does he hear it? Of course he hears it. Come on, let's get serious. But when Christians pray in the Spirit, is something else going on. You better believe it. And there's a communication that's going on there that the non-believer doesn't have the insight, the knowledge, and understanding. The Holy Spirit's still working in conviction, I believe. But we have the mind of Christ, and the Spirit is operative there, I think, in a different way than with a non-believer. And I do think that's important. So we pray in a different way. As believers, we ought to pray in the Spirit, but unfortunately, we don't always pray in the Spirit. Just because we're spiritual people doesn't mean we always pray in the Spirit. That's why he exhorts us, always praying in the Spirit. He contrasts that. What would you say? Now, I don't see this passage, I don't see this phrase in Scripture, but what's the opposite of praying in the Spirit? Naturally, praying in the what? Flesh. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we know in Galatians 5, it says... But I say, walk with the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And he talks about that in Romans 7. The things that I would do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. When does that happen? You know, some say, well, that was Paul talking about before he became a Christian. No, I don't think that's it. I think Paul still struggled with that. When we're not walking in the Spirit and praying in the Spirit, when we're acting carnally, we're walking in the flesh. That's in opposition to the real spiritual person we are, and that happens. We're walking out and we're praying out of the Spirit, looking to fulfill our own selfish desires, not God's will. Jesus said in Matthew, the sixth chapter at the end, after he talks about don't worrying, he said, but seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and what? And his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. You know, if we're seeking his kingdom, we don't have to worry about the other things. It doesn't mean that we don't make petition for them, but we don't have to worry about them. But if we're not seeking his kingdom, if we're out of the spirit and not praying in the spirit, then we are seeking selfish things, things for self, not according to his will. Is it possible to pray selfishly out of the spirit? Yes, it is. It is. To gratify only self, not to seek his kingdom, not to seek his righteousness, and when we do that, we stop relying on God, and we rely on whom to fulfill our, our prayers, ourselves. And that leads to what? 
worry, temptation, sin, and being out of harmony. So there is such a thing as praying out of the Spirit. I believe it's possible for believers to pray out of the Spirit. So he exhorts them to pray in the Spirit. And then he says, uh, praying, uh, in verse 18. It's participle, present participle, you know. Uh, in prayer and petition, then praying, and here it is. Here's the piece of spiritual armor in verse 18. You know, the first four steps in putting on the gospel armor were actually participles. And, and you know, uh, Joel talked about this last week. The, the imperative begins in verse 14. Stand firm. Be strong, verse 11. Now stand firm by doing what? Girding, participle with loins, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, shodding the feet with God, preparation of the gospel of peace. Taking up the shield of faith. Those are participles. They're dependent upon that imperative to stand firm. And then all of a sudden there's a gear shift. In the last two of those pieces of the gospel armor, they're, they're based on an imperative. He shifts back to the imperative in number five and six. And then he says, take. Take what? Take the helmet of salvation, and the verb isn't there, but it's implied, and also the sword of the Spirit. So you have stand firm, and then you dress with the armor, and the final consummating act of the armor is to put on that helmet of salvation and use the sword of the Spirit. And then you have following that this participle, praying. And I don't think that it's unconnected. I think it is another act of putting on the armor of God. I think it's the seventh step. Praying is essential to spiritual warfare. Fighting in spiritual warfare. I made a comment on Sunday morning and I didn't really explain it because I'd already preached long enough you know, the week before last. But at the end, as I introduced um, Joel's sermon for the evening, I said, we do not engage in supernatural warfare. I kind of left that hanging out there. What does that mean? We do not engage in supernatural warfare. Supernatural warfare suggests this, that there is a warfare between supernatural parties. That you've got God on one side and he's supernatural and the devil on the other side and he's what? Supernatural. That is not We do not engage in that kind of warfare. God is supernatural and only he. The devil isn't. The devil's superhuman. The devil's more powerful than we are when we're walking in the flesh and out of the spirit. But we can tell the devil to flee, resist the devil and he will flee, James tells us, only after we have done what? Submitted to God. You see... He is supernatural. The devil is not. We're talking about spiritual warfare here. Let's make no mistake about it. We are fighting in a, in a realm that is not just fleshly. It is high powers in heavenly places. And they're very powerful, but they're not supernatural. And in this spiritual warfare, he tells us, basically, this is important stuff. Elsewhere, even though I think that the emphasis isn't on praying continuously here, it's praying continuously in the spirit, he does say pray continuously elsewhere, doesn't he? We know in 1 Thessalonians, one very brief command as he closes that letter, pray continuously. It's important. Through prayer, what happens? The Spirit directs our paths with the Word of God and actions. Prayer then makes us aware of God's presence, doesn't it? And we can go forth with confidence. Prayer, as a result of prayer, we ask for boldness and God gives us boldness. That's happened before, I think, in Acts. Prayer brings to us an understanding of God's will. And not just the overall broad will, but also specifically how he wants us to fulfill it. 
And prayer guides us away from temptation and helps us to resist it and strengthens us. So prayer is essential for, super, uh, for spiritual warfare. So all of this, I think, has to do with that first point of praying in the Spirit. And then he says, pray with a focus. Pray with a purpose. And with this in view, he says, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. All of this has to do with praying for a purpose and a focus. It says, with this in view, well, that's a transitional phrase. It could be doing what? It could be looking back that way. It could be looking back at the spiritual armor. It could be saying, with all of this, as you put on the armor, pray. As you stand firm in the armor, pray. Uh, all of that that you pray. And I think that's valid. But I think the real focus here is looking forward. I think it's looking forward. With this that I am about to say, you need to be praying. I think that's more likely. As you pray, do what? Be alert. As you pray... Don't be just general about it, but petition for all the saints. As you pray, as a matter of fact, be specific enough. I want you to pray for whom? For me. For Paul. So with this in view, do, do those things. So the first of those, as you pray then, be on the alert. The word means to be sleepless. <laughs> Stay awake. You've never had sleepless nights, have you? Yeah. Um, you know... It's a soldierly posture. It's a soldierly attitude to stay awake, to be attentive, to be ready, especially when you're a private at your first assignment and your first duty post, you are on the, your guard. And the sergeant of the mount, the guard mount, then gives you his, his, the instructions, and the first instructions is stay awake, be alert, don't go to sleep, and do not desert your post until what? properly relieved. Roman soldiers could be executed for falling asleep on guard duty. Be attentive, Paul's saying against that context. As you're praying, he says, be focused at all times, even while you're putting on your armor. Even as you're putting this stuff on, you ought to be attentive in prayer. You see, Paul felt this was important enough that he said the same thing to the Colossians. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Jesus warned his disciples, and when he's talking about the end times in Mark, the 13th chapter, at the very end when he talks about the second coming, he says, nobody knows when it's going to happen. And then he says, take notice, be alert, but don't just be alert. He says, be alert and pray because you don't know when the time's coming. In Luke, the 21st chapter, he says, be alert and pray always, like Paul did, that you may escape all these things that are going to be coming in the great tribulation. Matthew, the 26th chapter, he says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. When did that happen? It was in the garden of Gethsemane. And what had just happened? He said, pray while I go over here and pray. And Peter, James, and John went with him and he came back and he found them doing what? Snoring away. And all their apnea, you know. Wake up! He went away and he prayed again. He came back and they were asleep again. So he's telling them to do what? Stay alert so that you can avoid temptation. Stay focused as you pray. 
Be intentional and attentive in the ways that you pray. Don't be distracted, even in preparations for battle. Hmm. You know, putting on the armor is important, but it's a means to an end. The goal isn't to wear the armor. The goal is to what? To go into battle with it. And if you don't keep your eyes out there in the middle of a war zone, putting on your armor, the enemy can sneak up on you from any direction. And while you're even putting on your armor, can attack you. So even when we are doing these other spiritual exercises, they ought to be done in prayer. Bible study should be done prayerfully. Fasting should be done prayerfully. Giving should be done prayerfully. Never let your guard down in prayer. Even as you're putting on and we're putting on the armor of God, we should do so prayerfully. Sometimes we become so obsessed with these spiritual disciplines. You know what I'm talking about? We become expert expositors of the scripture, or we learn so much about this from studying, you know, the resources that help us to plan sermons. And we can get really, really involved. You know, the deeper life is good. It's, it's good to pursue a deeper life, spiritual discipline to grow stronger, but the deeper life is not an end in itself. We should never forget to do it prayerfully. Mm. You know, we call it prayer meeting on Wednesday evening. A few years ago when I first came here, and, and it was my fault, we would uh, meet on the other side, far side. Now, I used to call this the far side. I don't know if you remember that. And we would eat, and then we would finish, and then we would say a blessing for the food, and we'd pray for the missionaries. And then we'd come over here, and I'd do Bible study for 45 minutes. Remember that, Jay? Yeah. Is it different now? Yes. Why? It's what? It's prayer meeting. Sometimes we can get so focused on the other spiritual disciplines that we forget to do the very most, well, maybe not the most important thing, but one of the most important things. Now what do we do? We finish our meal, we come over here, we have a time of singing spiritual songs, discipline, spiritual discipline. We have a bit of Bible study and devotion. We're usually finished at half past and we spend the rest of the time praying. And what we have to be careful about it is that in that 30 minutes, sometimes we spend a lot of time talking about praying and if we're not careful, we don't do a lot of praying. You know what I'm talking about. So when he's saying praying, he's not saying talk about it. He's saying do it. It's good to do these other spiritual disciplines, but don't let them distract us from doing the thing that God wants to do. And that's to talk to him and listen to him. And to pay attention to where God is directing us to act. Prayer is not just a spiritual discipline for growth. It is also a, a spiritual di discipline for action. Whenever we pray with God and talk with him, he doesn't just listen to us and he doesn't just talk with us just to have a nice conversation. He usually calls us to what? Committed action. Prayer is how God calls us to action to deploy us as Christian warriors. And prayer isn't just personal. Oh, it is personal, but it's also corporate. So it's how he also brings the body of Christ together to pray together for each other, but also to bring us to a unified focus of action together as the corporate body. And then he gives two examples of what he thinks they ought to be doing in prayer. He says to pray persistently, to petition for all believers, and then pray specifically for me. And I think those are good principles here. Let's don't just talk about Paul, but what's he saying? He's saying 
pray for all believers. That's petitioning. Make specific petitions for all kinds of people. And then pray for specific persons. You know, the word persistent here means to adhere to. It means literally to stick to so that you can't pull it apart. Be that persistent. Never give up. As Winston Churchill said, never, 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 never. Never, 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 never. Never, never, never give up. I don't know how many nevers there were, but you get the point. Jesus had just told his disciples um, uh, in Luke 18 to pray persistently and not lose heart. And what, what, what example did he give them? What parable did he give? He gave a parable then later about the, uh, the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector in the temple. But before that, do you remember the parable that he talked about? So that they would know to pray persistently and not lose heart. The persistent widow and the judge. So Jesus says the same thing. Be persistent in prayer. Every week we have a prayer list. I didn't bring it up with me, but you know what I'm talking about. It's single space, front and back. There are a lot of prayer requests that have been on there for a year. Some have been on there for two years. Some of them stay on that list for a week and then we drop them off. Some stay for a month and then their prayers are answered. Some of those prayer requests have not been answered and they've been on that list for over two years. Some might say, oh, what you need to do is, and I do, I scrub the, loop the, week, the list every week, okay? So why don't I take off some of those that have been on there for two years? Because there's still active requests and petitions. We pray with what? Persistence. Some of those are about people that we're hoping will hear the gospel and be saved and they haven't responded and they're 54 years old and they haven't responded yet. But we keep praying persistently for them. And it says pray for all the saints. What's the motive behind this? It's love. Paul has affirmed this um, in the first chapter when he, he, he says that he has heard of the Ephesians, and, and the phrase there is, and for their love for all the saints. And so now what he's saying is, if you love them, do what? Pray for them. The scope of it is universal. It's not just praying for the, the saints in Ephesus, but it's a kingdom enterprise. It's for all of Christ's followers, and not just for Baptists. Oh, from time to time, we do this in church, don't we? We pray for the other churches in our community. Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, and others like that. So it's not just denominational. It's not just an inbred thing. It goes beyond this church. Our prayer list has different categories on it, too. It's specific. It's not what I would call the Miss America prayers. You know what I'm talking about? You know, in the pageant, then they say, okay, now for, you know, what do you, what do you want to see? What is your dream? And 80% of the time they say, I want what? I want world peace. Well, yes, we want world peace, but we know this. The scripture says that's not going to happen until Jesus comes. And it doesn't mean that we don't pray. But when we pray for world peace on our list, we don't pray for world peace. We pray for what? We pray for what's happening in Russia and in Ukraine right now. We pray for problems in South Africa, we pray for specific places. We petition for specific things. It's not just a, oh, well, you know, I want everything to be better. Hmm. We have categories that we pray. We pray for uh, specific people as well. Making petition is making a specific request for all sorts of people. There's no boundary then. And I know he says pray for all the saints. 
but we also know that we go beyond that. We pray for folks that are not yet saints. They may not know it yet. Okay? Be on the alert to identify specific needs to pray for. And we do that. So at prayer meeting, what do we do? We say, are there any other prayer requests? Let's update the prayer requests. We alert one another of the prayer requests that not only we are praying for, but that others will join together with us in prayer so that we lock arms together spiritually and pray together and petition for specific people, for specific issues, for specific mission purposes, for specific missionaries by name. And then we also lift up others that we don't know by name because they've not been given to us. We pray for specific persons who ask us to pray for them. Paul's done this for them. Paul has prayed for the Ephesians. In chapter 1 it says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So he's prayed for them specifically. He's petitioned. Every believer needs prayer support. You need prayer support. I need prayer support. Others do too. And even Paul, isn't this something? Even Paul needed the help of others' prayers. He says, even pray for me in this ministry. Parallel passage is found in Colossians, the fourth chapter, verses two through four. He says almost the same thing. In addition to the church at Colossae and here, there's six other times that Paul specifically in his letters asks those churches to pray for him, for delivery from prison, so that the gospel that he is preaching will be effective, for uh, the door to be opened, he says to the Colossians, for the gospel. He asks the Thessalonians to pray for himself and for Silas and Timothy. Again, to the Thessalonians, he says, pray that the gospel will have free course and that I'll be protected from wicked men. To Philemon, he says, pray that I might be able to come to you. So he is asking the Philippians, I mean the Ephesians here, to do very much like what he has asked others. Paul's request to the Ephesians is in the form of a petition. It says, petition for all the saints and, the verb's not there, and on behalf of myself, but it's implied. So what he's saying is, I want you specifically to petition for me that my utterance hmm, might be effective. What's the word that's used there? You might think that it's some mystical sort of secret word, you know. It's logos. So that my logos, you see, will be effective. You know, it might be that what he's asking is so that his communication of the idea of God, the logos, will be effective. I think what he's praying, praying for is so that when I speak... It will be the utterance of God. When I speak, it will be the Lagos that is speaking. It'll be the word of God that comes out of my mind. And it'll be directed by the word, Jesus Christ. And it will be in the spirit and accomplishing what God wants. And then I'll be able to do it with what? Boldness. <laughs> I don't think that Paul ever had a problem with boldness. But what's he asking? I think one of the reasons he didn't is he had a whole bunch of churches praying for him that he would be what? He would be bold. Peter preached the first sermon with boldness. We know that. Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin, and they were amazed because these folks were uneducated. But they were what? They were articulate, and they were bold. And you know what happens in Acts 4, chapter. It says, and then after they were let, let out of uh, jail, they came and they gathered together. They prayed that what might happen? They might be bold. And it said the earthquake came and it shook the building. And they went out and they did what? They preached. They proclaimed the word of God with boldness. 
Paul has told the Ephesians the same thing in chapter 3. It says that we should have bold and confident access to Christ by faith to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. What's this mystery of the gospel? It's the fourth time that he's talked about a mystery in Ephesians. First time in chapter 1 actually could be the basis of the beginning of our series next week. We could take it out of 1 Corinthians 2. We could take it out of Ephesians 1. It is what? It is the mystery of God's will in verse 9. And what's the mystery of God's will? It is that redemption should come through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he talked about the mystery of Christ in chapter 3. And the mystery of Christ was what? That the gospel was to go to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And then he spoke about the mystery of the church in chapter 5. And what's the mystery of the church? The church is who? No. The church is what? What's the mystery? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and prepared her to be his what? Bride. That's the mystery. And so he comes to this mystery then. It's the mystery of the gospel which is explained in Romans 16. The mystery of the gospel, the only other place where you find those terms used together that I can find in the epistles. And here's the mystery of the gospel. It had been kept secret for long ages past. It's now been revealed through the preaching of Christ that has resulted in obedience to God by faith through Jesus Christ. In other words, it is the Christ, the cross, the kerygma that brings us to salvation that he's preaching. That he might be bold in that. And that he would fulfill his calling in difficult circumstances as a what? As an ambassador. The word here is based on the word presbyteros. It's not presbyteros, but that's the word that we get presbyter. And it's a technical term that wasn't just religious. It was a senior representative. It was like a minister of state. It was like an ambassador. And you know, in England, what do they call the cabinet members? We call the cabinet members in, in America a lot of things. Uh, but they call, there's a prime minister and there are ministers, the foreign minister and the home minister, the home office minister. Uh, ministers of state. Well, folks, what this word ambassador means is that we are ministers of the what? Kingdom of God. We are ambassadors. And 2 Corinthians 5 says we're ambassadors for whom? For Christ. Speaking boldly on his behalf. In chains, and of course we know that he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner of Christ, he says this in chapter 3. And in chapter 4 he says he's a prisoner of the Lord. Let's close then. The last section. Be encouraged and be blessed. Paul's concern for the Ephesians is this. He's imprisoned. And just like the Philippians knew that he was imprisoned and the Colossians know that he's imprisoned. He's concerned that they're worried about him. And possibly what might happen to them with the, with the coming persecution. And in Philippians, what did he do? He took a whole section of the letter, about nine verses, and he explained, Don't worry, everything's okay. You know, I'm doing okay. And even though there are those that are preaching another gospel, it's a good thing that they're preaching because the gospel's being preached. And don't worry about me, okay? But he hasn't written that in this letter. He sends Tychicus as his personal emissary, and he's got a plan. You see, he's got a pastor's heart. How long was Paul in Ephesus? Well, you get different interpretations by different people, you know. We know that he was three months before he moved into the uh, lecture hall, and then he was there at least two years. So we know he was there over two years. Some would say three. And he basically shepherded them for that time. You know, it's interesting. Ephesians is not a highly personal letter. 
of all of his epistles, Joe, I'm not sure if I've got this right, but I think, which one do you, you sense the most love and affection in, in terms of the writing to the churches? Maybe Colossians. I think Philippians. You, there's a, what would you say, Joe? I was going to say Okay, good. We're on the same sheet of music. <laughs> this, you know, this is, a lot of this is theology and all of, in Ephesians. You know, it's not highly personal. There are a few personal references here. But boy, when you read Acts, the 20th chapter, you see the love. You see the love between Paul and the Ephesians. The elders come from Ephesus, and they meet him at Miletus, and then as they part, it's one of the most emotional passages in Scripture in the New Testament. And when he was leaving, when he had said these things, Acts 20, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud, and they embraced Paul. And they repeatedly did what? They kissed him. And they grieved, especially over the word which he had spoken, that he would not see their face again. See, there's deep love here. He's very concerned for the Ephesian church. And so he says, I'm going to send somebody in person to you. I'm not just going to write you about this. I'm going to send you a reliable friend. He is an Adolphos. He is a brother. And he's a beloved brother. He's an Agapetas brother. He's faithful, he's pistos, and he is a minister, a diakonos. In other words, he's coming to serve you. He'd been with Paul on the third missionary journey. He'd traveled with six other companions from Corinth to Macedonia with Paul. And then they, Timothy and Trophimus and the others, went on to Troas and waited for Paul. That's what we know about the background. What we do know then is that he sent Tychicus to Colossae as well because it's in that letter with Onesimus. So he probably delivered both letters, the Philippian letter and the Colossian letter. And then there are two other references to Tychicus in the, um, in the epistles. In Titus, the third chapter, he says, I, I'm thinking about sending either Tychicus or Artemis to you, and we think to replace Titus there at Crete. We don't know for sure what happened, but we do know this. In 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, and it's apparently after Tychicus has visited Ephesus, after he has delivered the letter, he tells Timothy that he is going to then be coming, that Tychicus is going to come to Ephesus. And so what we think is that he sent Artemis to Crete. You see, he's sending one that knows Paul and knows what's happening and to send him as a personal representative to encourage them face-to-face and to strengthen them in the knowledge that everything is okay and to comfort them. So it's information and comforting. There's nothing, you know, as, and it's the Word of God, the written Word of God, inspired Word of God, it's the Bible, these letters that Paul's writing. So I'm not diminishing their significance or important. But what Paul does here is he sends another letter. He sends a letter that's written on the what? On the heart. He sends Tychicus in person. That's how much he cares. And then he closes by saying, Peace to you, brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. It's a triple blessing. You know, as Paul closes a lot of letters, he'll talk about peace some, and he'll talk about love some, but when that very last script at the very bottom, that almost postscript, that, that closing, in ten of the letters, he simply says what? 
grace be to you in some form or another. There are only three letters that he goes beyond that. In 1 Corinthians, he says, grace and love to you. And then the great closing that we often use in church to close the worship service. 2 Corinthians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what? The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is the only other place that Paul closes a letter with a triple blessing. And he says what? Peace to the brothers, love with faith, and grace be with all those who love Jesus. And with that, he closes the letter. I think he wraps it up, and he gives it to Tychicus with a letter to the Colossians, and he's off on his journey, whether that happened at the same time or not. So we come to the end of our study of the book of Ephesians, and I think it ends on a very personal note where Paul shows his love in a way and care for them. He wants them to make sure that they are what? They're constant in prayer, that they put on the spiritual armor of God, and that they're encouraged because they're going to face what? Persecution. And they're going to have to exercise all those spiritual disciplines to ward off the darts of the evil one. Next Sunday night, we start the Bible storying, and we're going to begin with 1 Corinthians 2, as you heard, and talk about God's mystery of the ages that was revealed from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Heaven over the next year. I invite you to be here next Sunday as we begin that series, and we've got then the uh, All Church Fellowship that will follow it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.